This podcast has bad words. On this week's episode, Zach and I discuss my conversation with social media scholar Tasik Wong. We're talking about Facebook again, y'all. Like and share. Hey, Fazal, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm getting over a really bad cold, so everybody excuse me if you hear me sniffling or coughing. Luckily, I can't spread germs through the internet. There there will be no virus spread during this podcast. Right. Not not this kind of, not a, yeah, not a a physical virus. Right. (laughs) And hopefully not a computer virus. Right. So we uh, had a guest. Uh, I interviewed Dr. Wong of the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. Most of his research is around the internet and social media. And it was a very good conversation. But I wanted to spend some time with you, uh, Zach, talking about some of the issues that arose in the interview. I found it interesting, his distinction between the types of social media, which I had never considered before, really. Yeah. I kind of lumped them all together. You're talking but about relationship-oriented and content-oriented last face? Yeah, because I, I never thought about what that distinction was or what, what it meant or if it even existed. Yeah. And then when he, when he said that the content-based social media has more of a correlation with false consensus, that kind of blew my mind because I would I would have assumed that it would be the other way around. Right. I mean, well... Let, let's 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 well let's talk let's define those first and then go from there. What exactly, if you can refresh my memory, was what are the difference between the two? Well, as 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 Wong talked about it, relationship oriented is your Facebooks and Twitters uh, platform platforms like that, which are really about people interacting with quote-unquote friends. And then you have a platform like YouTube, which is very creating content-oriented. It has a social media aspect to it because you can follow people, you can comment on things. You're you're obviously sharing something, but the focus really is on the the content. If it weren't for the videos, there'd be no point. Exactly. And I I suppose maybe Instagram is in that that same category as as, as YouTube. Do you use Instagram a lot? I'm signed up, but I don't. I, I don't actually use very much social media at all right now. Um, I was really big into it for a while. It was fun, mm-hmm. but in, I don't know, maybe the past year, year and a half, it's gotten less and less fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see you on Facebook that often. And, you know, I'm I'm actually trying to reduce my Facebook usage just because um, I, sometimes it's a waste of time. I mean, I, I can also get a lot out of it, but sometimes it's a real time sucker. Well, the thing that really started to get to me was the, the privacy angle of it. So mm-hmm. if you remember the, the um, what was it, the Analytica, uh, what was that company? Oh, called? yeah, yeah, yeah. Cambridge Analytica. Cam- yeah. So I was actually caught up in that. So Facebook sent out this notification to people who had been affected, and I was one of them. I didn't take the the, the uh, personality exam that they used to, to garner the information, mm-hmm. but one of my friends did. Oh, wow. And by doing so, Cambridge and Analytica got my information also, my, my data also. Yeah, so for me, that was that was kind of the, the starting point. Where I was like, should I be doing this? Well, I noticed that you I've always wanted to, to, to communicate through Facebook Messenger because I prefer to type and you didn't don't like to use it, and that's why that's why you shy from it or were you already kind of wary of Facebook Well no yeah that, that I mean the Cambridge thing I was made aware of in, in 2016 late 2016 early 2017 mm-hmm. so yeah I mean that's that's why because I don't know if I can trust them with my data and I don't even know how much of my data they have
have beyond what I've given. So right. I've, I've been kind of feel to find out that you one of the people who had their data data mind. I mean, did it make you feel in any way um, kind of that you were ah the word I never think of the word not nah, rape is way too <laughs> strong of a word, but but kind of that Vi- violated. violated. Yeah, that's what I'm going. Vi- did you feel violated? Uh, well, yeah. The larger thing for me was here. Here I am thinking I'm doing everything I need to do to safeguard my data and someone else's actions made me vulnerable and i was just like what the fuck yeah yeah it's you know that's another thing that we can talk about in the future too is how the europeans the european union you know from what i've read they are much more strict about what google and other companies can do with data they're much more strict about private internet privacy for their citizens more so than here but that, that's a topic for another discussion let's get back yeah, to but um, but in terms of cambridge analytica right the safeguards were there they just abused the system so I, I don't know and have they paid any penalty for that I'm, I'm not too aware of it I mean I'm not either there's there's probably some reputational damage but yeah it, it, it achieved the outcome they wanted because they were they were kind of uh, promoting Donald Trump so yeah. they got what they wanted so does it really matter if anything else happened to him I don't know so yeah so yeah, but anyway, like the idea that you you could see more correlation of false consensus from a YouTube or an Instagram struck me as odd mm-hmm. when we have all this in the news about, we talk so much about Facebook and how it creates this filter bubble and people assume that the, the, the position that they, that they take is the position of most of the people around them. Okay. I was one of those people, like when, when Donald Trump announced, and I, I may be getting off topic, but I'm, I'm going with it. When Donald Trump Trump announced his candidacy. And at the time I was a regular user of Facebook. And I started to see people in my friend group talk about this as though it were a good thing. It completely, it completely rocked my world that these people that I thought I knew were like, yeah, Donald Trump, let's do it. Let's go. It shook me to the core. I'm surprised that you have friends that would have been fans of Trump. So was I. <laughs> that's that's the last thing I was expecting. And so other than that though, what what point? Well, the point is that so I I expected the false consensus to be one that more strongly correlated to you know Facebook or Twitter, mm-hmm. but at least from from what uh, uh, Dr. Wong is saying mm-hmm. in his research is actually you know YouTube, which now that he said it, it makes sense. I mean, there, YouTube has had a huge problem with radicalization, both of, of uh, teens with white nationalists yeah. and with uh, terrorists. Yeah, so, conspiracy theories. They, I, I I just yeah. heard today on the news that they want to start getting rid of, you know, web or videos that promote, like, for example, that Sandy Hook massacre was a false flag operation and things like that. And there's right. tons of stuff on there, apparently. Yeah. So it, it makes it makes sense that, you know, there's this false consensus correlation on YouTube, but I just didn't expect that to be the strongest one. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess one, he was very keen on this idea that, you know, people maybe don't know they're in bubbles, you know, bubbles, meaning that they're only, you know, kind of getting confirmation by getting the kind of information that they prefer, but maybe they're not, they're not realizing it. And he had ideas of how, you know, that could be fixed. Um, mm-hmm. My my thought, though, is do people, I don't know that people necessarily want to be out of their bubbles. Um, I think that, you know, I think people are in bubbles because where they want to be, whether they know it or not. Um, I think that, you know, and in a way, I'm guilty of it, too. I could go to other websites and read other views. And sometimes I do, but I don't make it a habit. And the reason is not because I feel like, you know, certain 
really important things to me are being challenged and it makes me feel uncomfortable. The reason is because I just don't find them to be credible. I'm reading them and I feel like I'm wasting my time. I feel like this isn't accurate. You know, this is misrepresenting what's going on. So, you know, I guess I'm kind of guilty of it too. And I don't know, is that really bad? Should I be going to read National Review every day or gosh, you know, watching Wall Street Journal? <laughs> or yeah, Wall Street Journal is not it. It's a little better, but but you get you get my drift. Yeah. I don't know. Well, the thing is there used to be a time when even in what was understood to be a, an outlet that had a conservative bent, mm-hmm. there was some respect for journalistic standards and and fact checking. Mm-hmm. So what what we have in the current media landscape with players like Fox News and Facebook mm-hmm. and, and YouTube and Infowars and yada yada. Oh, is this complete, you know, disrespect and and, and disdain for fact checking and journalistic uh, standards? Well, I guess that um, makes me feel a little better then, because I really do want to know as much as I can in order to make informed, you know, opinions on things. But I know that I'm not going to find anything of use if I go to Breitbart or Infowars. That you know, it's like, and so you know, maybe I'm being, you know, trying to be too open minded in a sense, you know. But the distinction. But the distinction here is that you and you and I have media training, so we're not like you know rank and file news uh, reader or viewer. Right. So we, we kind of have to step back from our, our own experience because it's not it's probably not the typical experience. You're right. We work in when, newspapers. We studied mass communication. So yeah, I mean that's why we have yeah. this podcast. It's something that we're into, and yeah, it, it's kind of sometimes you have to remember that not everybody, it's not everyone's cup of tea. They don't think about the media maybe in the same way that we do, which is not. Just well, and, and, I don't mean to sound arrogant about it, but well, no, it's, it's not arrogant. It's, it's having a different orientation to the media. And I've had these kind of dis- I had discussions and kind of these moments of you know shock or being taken aback, talking to friends and family who are not in media, have not studied media about things that they they read or view, and they are not in the least bit critical about the source. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm not saying that as a dig. Right. My first thought is okay. So who said this. Right. But other people don't come from, from that point of view. Yeah, well, well, the first thing I do is okay, where did this news, where did this article come from? And I think I might have mentioned this before, you know, if, if it's a website and if there's anything in the URL that says something, you know, that has the word truth in it and it's usually bullshit, you know, so I, and a lot of times when I read something that, that really makes me raise an eyebrow, whether it's something that I kind of like to hear or I disagree with, I will, if I'm not familiar with that news source, I will go, I will read the about, I will even just go and do some other Googling to see if, you know, what other views there are about whatever, you know, online media site it is. And, you know, you'd be surprised a lot of times that they are clearly not non-biased sources. They, you know, they have an angle and that's fine. But, you know, if you don't know that, then, and you think you're getting, you know, a fair deal, you know, from a professional reporter or journalist, someone who's fair-minded, you know, then, yeah, that that's unfortunate because then you're being duped in a way. Well, yeah. And if, if you take an outlet or a quote-unquote platform like Facebook, where you might have Breitbart and Infowars right next to the Washington Post and CNN and NPR and whomever, then they all seem to be credible because they have similar layouts. Mm -hmm. They have similar production values. They look to be equivalent. Mm -hmm. And whereas you and I might say, well, are they? And go look into it. The average person isn't making that, asking that that question. They just assume Mm -hmm. that 
Hey, I'm I'm on Facebook. Facebook is you know this multinational billion dollar company. This must be you know at least okay to show and 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 somewhat truthful. So that, that there's this lack of questioning of it. Doctor Wong talked about skepticism versus cynicism. Yeah, I remember that. And he's right that we need to be skeptical, but I don't think that people are skeptical. No, I think people are easily duped. I, I think that what happened, you know, in the last election with all of the um, Russian troll, I don't know what you want to call it, you know, misinformation, the, you know, there's different things that they did on Facebook. Just, I, I just remember seeing RT Russian Today, Russia Today, which is, you know, a, a government uh, mouthpiece, but it's dressed up in a way that it looks like it's a, you know, very fair-minded um, publication. And I would see so many articles passed around by RT and a few others that I can't think of that, you know, at the time I knew that they were more propaganda than actual news. But a lot of people back then didn't. I remember people that I knew who were, you know, intelligent, savvy people who were snookered and passing around RT articles and, and other articles like that. Um, and so well, they, they probably they probably found those articles on social media. Oh, yeah. I'm saying these were circulated through Facebook. That's where I would see them. And I would, you know, argue and say, look, I, I, I'm not about shooting the messenger, but, you know, in this case, RT is not, you know, a reputable, legitimate news source in the sense that the Washington Post is or the New York Times, you know, it's it's run by the Russian government. And, you know, later on, there were all these stories about, you know, these journalists, you know, Western or American journalists that worked for RT that they later on said that there were there was a lot of pressure to like toe a certain line and say certain things. And some of these people really damaged their careers by going and doing that and and really abandoning their journalistic ethic and, you know, shame on them for doing that. You know, this is somewhat related, but I have this policy of I try to avoid news articles or documentaries from Al Jazeera. And some of the things that I've seen, I think they're very professionally produced. And and some of the documentaries I've watched are very fair. I do, you know, and I understand that they're going to take a, you know, and I'll be, you know, open that, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pro-Israel and, you know, not, you know, I don't like Netanyahu and this and that and the other, but, you know, Al Jazeera, they, they definitely have an anti-Israel bent, which is fine. But my main issue with them, and it, which whether there was the Israel thing or not, is that it's run by the Qatari government. And Al Jazeera could never do an exe on the Qatari royal family and corruption going on there. They just can't do it. So even though some of the product that they create is legitimate and even good journalism at the time, just irks me wrong that I, I, I just don't like this idea that this is funded and bank, you know, by by a government that would never allow itself to be in investigated by, by its own uh, media company. And then, of course, there's a difference between Al Jazeera in English and Al Jazeera in Arabic. But maybe we're going off a little topic. But again, this is about the idea of, though, of a lot of you know, people not being aware of what the, you know, what, what's behind the news source. How legitimate is it? Right. But the, the question that, that everyone is talking about, right, talking about right now is what responsibility should a Facebook or a Google, the owner of YouTube, have right. in this space? So you talk about uh, Al Jazeera uh, America, or what do they call it? I forget how they, how they call themselves. Yeah, them or uh, the Washington Post or the San Francisco Chronicle. They have they have to be they're they're held responsible for what they for what they publish. Right. So if, if they get a challenge from a private citizen or a government about the, the the truthfulness of what they've reported, then they could they can be held liable for it. Right. Whereas when you take YouTube and Facebook, they cannot be held liable for it. And the reason they can't be held liable is because Congress in the late nineties, ninety seven I think it was, uh passed the Communications Decency Act, mm-hmm. which was really was really about 
about porn, but <laughs> it had it had one little section in it, section 230, that talked about a platform not being liable for what uh, a third party publishes on that platform. Right. And that's where we get to the issues of Facebook and Twitter and these platforms. And right. YouTube can just sit there and people can put stuff on it and then they're not responsible for it. Right. But I, I, say, I, I say that it protects YouTube and Facebook, but it also protects the Washington Post and New York Times, too, because they have comments areas and they can't be liable for what's in their comments. But I think they have uh, probably be- a disclaimer. I mean, I haven't really looked closely lately, although I read the comment sections regularly. I'm pretty sure that, that you know, these are not the views of the Washington Post. Well, yeah, but that's because they're they're seasoned uh, uh, journalists. Well, I'm they don't about have the to do I'm that. talking about the, the talkback. That's where you're talking about a third that, that they're that well, being a, a platform I, for other people that could do bullshit in, but the only place they can do that is in the, the comment section. They're not, you know, yeah, when they go to, right. you know, if anybody's going to be published in the, you know, as a reporter or on the editorial page, yeah, then those those have to be fact checked and they can't just have anybody say anything. Right. But my, my point is that the comment section of the New York Times is equivalent to Facebook. Yeah. It's, it just so happens that all of Facebook is the comment section. Right. Right. So anyone on, on the Internet is protected by this this section of this law. Okay. And the question more and more is, should we have this this, this distinction? Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't I don't have an answer to that because honestly, if if we didn't have this rule, there would be no internet as we know it. There would be no user generated content at all because no one would take the would take the risk. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that again, a lot of it just comes down to that you should you know, people need to educate themselves on what you know, the sources of the information that they're reading about. But as we know, the average person probably isn't going to do it and so what can you do and then that brings us back around to this whole how people end up in bubbles and you know reading certain websites that not even necessarily have a certain news bent but might not even be you know doing legitimate journalism in the sense that yeah there's no fact checking you know pure propaganda and uh i guess that's just quote-unquote danger in our modern media ecosystem i don't know that anything can be done about it yeah there's no reason to think that individual citizens or or news consumers will take the extra time and effort to vet their news sources or even or even create a very media diet to where at least they see the other points of view and have something to balance things against. So I have no faith in that ever happening. Well, Giselle, there is this service. Shame on me for blanking. I should have remembered this for this recording, but it what is it? it, it I've, I've seen the commercial a zillion times where people, can, they, they say in the commercial, oh, I've only been getting my internet from here or my news from here, my news from there. Now, they, like the service that gives you apparently a number of different views from different sources that apparently are reputable. And um, I can't remember the name of the, the thing, but so there is something out there that for people who want to make sure that they're getting, you know, a well-rounded dose of media. There is that service, at least, that I know of. So that- no, I, I don't disagree with that because Dr. Wong talked about um, browser extensions that can help. I actually even downloaded one called NewsGuard to kind of see see how it worked. I, I ended up not using it because I after after reading the, the terms of service, I realized that it required access to all of my browsing history, oh, my, pass- yeah. my passwords, my credit cards, what? phone numbers I enter into browsers. So I was like, well, that's enough the problem with the internet. Uh, so I decided not to use it. But the point remains, we're relying on individual non-trained and media people to 
to seek out these tools. Like you said, a lot of people don't think there's a problem. They're perfectly fine living in their bubble mm-hmm. and having maybe a certain percentage of the news content they receive be completely false. They're totally okay with what they're getting and have no incentive to seek other uh, well, people, uh, other outlets. Well, yeah, it's all the confirmation bias and, and people just, yeah, they, they that's why I just dispute the whole idea that there's a lot of people out there who really dying for like a really great mix of professional journalism that, you know, has many different viewpoints. I actually think that most people are actually content to live in their bubble because mm-hmm. it makes them feel good. You know, I mean, But if that is true, what are the solutions if that's true? Well, I, I, I don't know that there really is a solution. And I it's something that concerns me. You know, I think that especially now, it, since Trump's been elected, things have apparently become extremely tribal, from what I understand, more so than ever. And people have really dug in their heels. And it's just really unfortunate. I could be wrong. You know, maybe I'm being cynical about people, but I, I really get the feeling that people make up their mind and then are happy to just learn the information that confirms their bias, really. And I think that, you know, I, I remember reading an article that, you know, there's even a part of your brain that lights up the pleasure center when you read an op-ed or something that really gives you the red meat that you want to eat, shows you how bad that Hillary is, or maybe even, you know, when... <laughs> Sometimes I get, you know, really enjoy reading an article that just really shows something, you know, that about Trump that, you know, I have noticed or a particular thing going on and how I think it's dangerous. And then I might read an op-ed that sounds upon that. And it, it does feel good sometimes to, ha- to to be feel vindicated. Like, oh, you know, I learned about some news. I have this idea. Here's a thought. Maybe this means this. And oh, now here's this, you know, Max Food wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. And I read it and it completely, you know, validates what I was thinking. And so also it feels cool that you know, a, a pundit, you know, that, oh, I came up with something without having a pundit, you know, tell me. And I, there is a, you know, I think a pleasure center in the brain that goes off too for that. And so I think there's that aspect of it. I think it makes people feel good to be vindicated in their views. And so they're going to go to those places that make them feel good. Right. And, and again, if we can't count on individual news consumers to do this work, what are the alternatives? So uh, Dr. Wong brought up this Gallup poll that said uh, 96% of internet users think the tech companies should be more responsible in dealing with this problem. Mm-hmm. Only 16% thought that the government had a role. Of course, 38% said that people should be able to do this on their own and distinguish between what is real and what is not, which I'm entirely believe believe in. I mean, that's it's not really that easy. Mm-hmm. But there, there has been a lot of talk about, about regulating tech companies like Facebook and Google, right. from Elizabeth Warren, from Bernie Sanders, and innumerable others. What do you think of that idea? My natural inclination is to not want the government regulating the free flow of information. Unless well, the, the it's, government, you know, extreme the, the gov- type of hate speech, you know, that the yelling fire in a, you know, movie theater type stuff. Yeah, then you need the government to come in. But with, with the right to freedom of speech, you know, comes I guess this comes down to responsibility of, of the news consumer. And a lot of us are irresponsible. Well, and I don't think that government fix that. I don't think well, that, that, so here's, here's my take on it. The government, if the government were to regulate these companies, they would be regulating these companies within a competition framework. Okay. So much of antitrust and much of, of past government regulation that broke up companies was about antitrust and competition. Mm-hmm. So if you're saying that Facebook is too big, Google is too big, no one can compete, and therefore we have this problem of misinformation, disinformation, and this is how we fix it. The thing though is, I don't think that competition can fix misinformation and disinformation. If you separate Instagram, WhatsApp, from Facebook, I don't think that problem goes away. I think we just have three smaller players.
taxpayers dealing with the problems individually. Yeah. So you're right in that the government can't regulate speech like Facebook, Facebook could do on its own because they have to work within that First Amendment framework. So I don't know that there is a government solution, even if we want there to be one. Right. I think that government would only have a legitimate place is in terms of, and I, I should be more upon this, but you know, I do know that Facebook is under a lot of pressure to make sure that it's not abused by Russian trolls and, and whatnot for the, the upcoming elections. And But again, um, I don't know that government can make Facebook do it. And so I, I think, you know, but I think the reason that, that that's imperative somehow tackle is because it starts to get to the heart of our democracy. You know, when when so much propaganda and lies can be spread in, and weaponized in the way that the Russians did it the last time around, that really does start to undermine our democracy. And that's a real problem. But then again, it's, yeah, it's that, you know, but you don't want to ban speech if it, you know, because there's freedom of speech. So there, but Facebook, I think, wants to be viewed as the good guy. And they don't want to be seen as helping the Russian trolls to confuse Americans and therefore, you know, have, you know, all of the stuff that happened, you know, whether it's, you know, just creating discord and racial problems. I mean, that's what the Russians are doing. They're really just trying to, you know, force salt in the already existing wounds in American society and just create as much discord as possible. And as much as that Facebook's able to, to try to prevent that, that's great. But it's just, it's just, it's just a, a, we're in a different place that we've never been. And up until this last election, it never even occurred to me how it could be, how, how news could be weaponized the way it was. And what's really frightening is that I think our, our pants are down in a lot of ways because the president himself refuses to admit it, that it happened, even though we know it happened. You know, the Mueller report really made it clear, like, what a, you know, sophisticated effort it was. And doesn't seem to be much interest um, among the Republicans who try to do much to prevent this kind of stuff, probably because they know that it benefits them, which is just horrible abdication of their responsibility as Americans. And so, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's our Achilles heel because we're a free society. We, we could never hit the Russians back in the same way because they don't have, you know, a free and open press. Assuming that we wanted to hit back at them in that way. It's one of the vulnerabilities that comes with, you know, being an open society. It's and it's not just us. The Russians have done this in, in Western Europe. They did a lot of stuff to push, you know, for Brexit. You know, it's very, it, you know, it can be argued that without all of that meddling that they might not have, that the British might not have voted for Brexit. Yeah, and they did the same thing in, in Chechnya, didn't they, around their elections? Oh, yeah, they definitely do it close to home in their own backyard, which is like, that's like almost like a given that they would. But, you know, and then they have done it to Germany, you know, and, and it's, it can be very dangerous because, you know, a lot of these countries have difficult histories with their with their far right and um and they're doing they they've done it they were doing it with the french you know they we're not the only one and right. but the but other you, 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 you our do. allies at least are seem to be like a little more concerned or as a whole they seem to be more concerned about it and like taking more effort to mitigate that whereas here half of the country is pretending it didn't happen or they know it did and they're kind of glad because it helps them right but you, you make an interesting point that our free and open society makes us vulnerable to it. But I think more specifically, our our orientation to information is different than someone in, in Russia or, or China. Those people assume that there is bias in their media and the government has a hand yeah. in it. Whereas here and in France and the UK, we assume that the news is independent from the government. Right. And therefore, we can always find information out there somewhere that's true. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it does put us in, in a position that is different from countries that are more uh, authoritarian. Well, you know, 
Well, the only solution that I can see is that maybe in college or certainly in high school, there there should be, if there isn't already, maybe some emphasis or some classes or, or part of a class in civics or something that focuses on media literacy to make people aware of that. Just You just can't log on and read something and think that's okay, you know, to, to, to get people to learn how to be a little more, you know, to discern what is more of a realistic um, news source and what isn't. Because if people don't even know to be aware of that, then, you know, this problem will bedevil us forever. So maybe that's the answer is just to make people aware and, and doing that through dual system. Well, what if that 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 made me think of something kind of a, a something that's analogous to this a little bit. So I'm thinking about the early days of advertising and how people would make claims of all kinds. Right. And because it was in the local paper, readers assumed it was true and they bought the mm-hmm. products. Government eventually cracked down and said, well, the newspaper isn't responsible for this false claim in this ad, but the manufacturer or the company who who bought the space right. is. So they went they went after they they they'd go after you know John Deere instead of the you know the Penny Press or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. So and the other component of that is if you compare the average uh, the average person viewing advertising in say the early 20th century to the average person even a child nowadays who watches advertising they come to it with different assumptions. So two disconnected ideas here. Bear with me. One, does the government go after not Facebook, but the individual posters? Two, will we just naturally get to a point like we did with advertising where people are able to just naturally make the distinction between this is absurd, this makes more sense? Well, see, again, I think the problem with that is that you're talking about ideas. I think it's very easy and okay and necessary to uh, come down hard with the law um, on an advertiser if they're selling something that's bullshit or dangerous or a total lie. But if it's information, well, people have a right to create a website, write their news bullshit. And, you know, I guess as long as they're not openly calling for violence and killing specific people, they have a right to do it. But yeah, I mean, if, you know, you say that you have this product that that can do this and it totally doesn't and, you know, there's probably, I'd have to look more into it. But yeah, I'm sure that there are, you know, laws that, you know, there has to be a certain level of truth in advertisement. You know, I mean, you can't say like, oh, you know, our fly this airline and you can get these and these and these things, you know, or whatever. And then you find out that you got to pay all this money to check your bags or something like that. Can't can't do that. That's not right. But but that's a tangible thing. That's a service that's being offered to product. You're talking about but you're talking about intellectual content. Well, yeah, but even within even even within free speech, there are limits. Right. So you can't you can't libel libel or slander someone. You can't you can't use someone's likeness without right. their permission. Right. Uh, there there are limitations to free. Speech that that the, that you can still have a governmental role uh, is just going to depend on, and this is probably you know not going to happen right now because the Supreme Court is heavily stacked towards conservatives. But you, you, you take, for example, the person I think it was last week who posted the doctored footage of of Nancy yeah, Pelosi. Yeah. Uh, so she could she could make a libel claim on that. I, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, I mean, not saying that it would go it would go far that, in court, but she could make that, that claim. That also brings up the whole deep fake stuff now with, you know, there's just yesterday I was listening to NPR and they were interviewing Bill Gates and then they um, played a recording of Bill Gates 
saying something, but it wasn't him actually saying it. It was a, a computer program that used his voice, basically had him saying things. And so, so yeah, that can be made illegal because that, you know, you can't, like you said, you can't, um, forgot how you phrased it, but yeah, you can't put words in people's mouths or make people say things they never said, but it's still going to be something that's dangerous when it's out there. And we're going to be seeing that because the technology is already there. I mean, we saw it with Nancy Pelosi and you know what, how many people don't know that it was, that it was bullshit. You know what I mean? Cause they saw it in their favorite news source and that's it. And they don't know about the follow-up. Well, I mean the, the retraction never gets the same of kind of course. attention as the original article. We all yeah. know that you, you can't, you can't be in, in, in news media and, and yeah. not understand I mean, that dynamic. I've always used the metaphor that it's really easy to go into a room and just make a huge mess. It takes a lot more effort than to clean that mess up. Right. So yeah, the damage can be done. So even with these deep fakes, but yeah, maybe that might be a way to try to prevent deep fakes from happening. And again, when I say deep fakes, I mean images of people, the actual person saying things, but that they're not actually saying, but you know, through the wonders of technology, it really looks like they're saying these things. Maybe the that the punishment, you know, for doing that kind of stuff should should be strict to, to you know, make sure that, that, that people won't do that. Because that, that could really, really screw up the ability for people to get, you know, legitimate information in which to make intelligent decisions, you know, in terms of who are going to support or vote. And then, you know, next thing you know, it starts to create chaos that really affects the heart of our democracy. Because really, at the end of the day, we can't have a functioning democracy if people don't have access to or agree on some basic truth that they can base their opinion, you know, decide who they're going to support. So yeah, I think it's really dangerous. And I think that the penalties should be pretty strong. You know, if you find out that some guy in wherever had, you know, taken the likeness of, let's just say Nancy Pelosi again, and did something like that, and, and, you know, I think that, yeah, maybe the punishment for that should be strict, should be a, a big fine, you know, because uh, that really, it, it, it sounds like in a lot of ways, oh, but nobody's getting hurt, whatever, it could even be funny. But no, it, it's serious stuff because when you start, you know, really deceiving people that in, in such a way, it has huge effect on society. And it, I think that, but we'll see. I mean, you know, this is new territory. But so if technology is, is the cause of the problem, can technology be the solution to the problem? Uh, Dr. Wong talked about using AI to filter out newsworthiness, trustful, uh, trustworthiness and, and content on, on social media. Do we think that's something that, that I mean, I, I, suppose, I suppose it would matter who created the AI and how they deploy it. Well, and that's the other thing, too. What I just was thinking about what I just said about having serious penalties for people that would do deep fakes and put words in other people's mouths and whatnot. But you know what? When if they're in Russia, we can't get them, you know? So it's a big problem. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of people getting duped. Wow, that's, that's, that's pretty dark. It is. But I think that's what we're going to see. And, and you know, if I'm a Russian, I'm uh, there's absolutely no reason why I would not continue to wreak as much havoc as I can on the, on the upcoming elections because they haven't paid a price at all. So why not? Fuck, we just had the president say recently that he would accept information from a, a, a different country. He would read it and he might not tell the FBI. So it's starting from, you know, the, the rod is at the top, but even not without a guy like Trump, this is a, a real pro. This is a real um, difficult issue that we're going to be facing, I think. And it's going to really affect, you know, Western or countries that have, you know, more or less an independent media that people are supposed to trust or want to trust or try to trust. And uh, I, yeah, I don't know what the answers are, the solutions are. Like you said, even if you can say later, oh, well, this that thing about Pelosi, it was fake. The damage is done. Yeah. I don't know. That's all I have to say. Well, on, on that depressing uh, note, Zach, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go in the bathroom here and uh, uh, cry a bit into, into sink. I don't know. Wow. It's just it's pretty depressing stuff. Well, I'm going to write a blog but, about 
about dogs, so that'll be happier for me. Actually, <laughs> canine facts. Uh, now, yep. all my blogs, I, I, I do due diligence. I mean, otherwise, you know, I would lose my client. Right. Well, Zach, thanks for, for depressing me. Hey, um, anytime. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'll talk to you next okay, time. Okay, take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps new listeners find our show. Thanks again.